You're listening to the sermon podcast of Covenant Baptist Church in Arden, North Carolina. To learn more about us, visit covbap.org. Now, today's sermon. Well, beloved, we are in Romans chapter 7 today as we continue to make our way through this wonderful letter from the pen of the Apostle Paul. Most pointedly, we're going to be considering verses 7 through 20 of Romans 7 this morning. And by way of introduction, let's consider, in light of the gospel, the things that Paul has been writing, in light of justification, in light of union with Christ, all of these wonderful truths, how in the gospel, the righteousness that God gives to sinners is revealed, how the only hope for a fallen human being is that God would count us righteous on account of Christ alone. That by faith, apart from anything we have ever done or anything that we might ever do, by God's grace, not our merit, we are counted with the holiness, the righteousness, and the satisfaction of Christ. We have been united to him. In him, we have died to sin's guilt. Because of our union with Christ, sin will no longer reign over us. And in Christ, we have been set free from the law. In light of all of that, What about the law? Is it good? Is there something wrong with it that we need to be set free from it? And what about the fact that as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we all still struggle mightily with sin? What about that? This is such an important section of Scripture. There is a debate that has existed around this text throughout the history of the church, as to whether Paul is writing in Romans 7 as a Christian or whether he is writing of himself in an unconverted state. Our position here as the pastors of Covenant Baptist Church and what our confession of faith makes clear, even in the words that were read this morning regarding our sanctification, is that Paul is most certainly writing as a Christian in Romans chapter 7. I'm not going to approach this text or this sermon polemically in any sense because I don't think it's needed. All I intend to do is expound the text in its most obvious and straightforward sense in the context of the letter. And I trust it will be plain to us all. In addition to just the text itself and our attempt to rightly understand it. There is also the reality of our experience, which is not nothing. Every saint from all time has experienced the battle against the flesh, the cry of the soul that we want to obey and do well, and yet we struggle to do it. That the wicked things that we find ourselves doing are not what we want to do, And our hearts break over that. Every one of us, as these words are read and considered, will say in our souls, he is writing about me. He is writing about my Christian experience. 
So as you listen this morning, one, thank God for these words. Two, in one sense, this entire message could be considered application to your heart and mind. Because as we see ourselves in the words of Romans 7, there is comfort, there is encouragement, there is honesty and acknowledgement of our frame, and there is hope to be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a lot that I will not have time to say today. We trust the Lord with that next week. Lord willing, we will consider the final verses of Romans 7. And there is more that can be said there, particularly about our delight in God's law. So with all of that by way of introduction, you may have already opened your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. As you're turning, perhaps, to Romans 7, remember what Paul had written back in chapter 6 and verse 14, that sin will not have dominion over us. That's fact. Right? Sin will not have dominion over us because, he says, we are not under the law, but under grace. He begins to further explain that, as we have considered, beginning in chapter 7 and verse 1. In particular, chapter 7 and verse 4, we see that in Christ, we died to the law so that we might no longer belong to the law, but we might belong to Jesus. And we considered how it is precisely our belonging to Jesus that results in our bearing fruit for God. In verse 5 of Romans 7, Paul wrote that while we were still in our natural, corrupt state, the law only exacerbated our sinful passions. And then in verse 6, he said, though, that we have been released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. All of this through our union with Christ in his death. And the result of that, says Paul, is that we serve God in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code. So have all of that in your mind as we now look to Romans 7, verses 7 to 20. Listen now as I read. This is the Word of God. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law... Sin lies dead. I was once alive, apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I 
am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. We thank the Lord for his word today and every day. My plan for our time is to preach the text in two pretty substantial points, two parts. Then I'll offer two other points of further reflection and a very brief conclusion. I'll try to make it plain for you as we go. So as we look to the text now, point one of two, the goodness and holiness of the law and its greatest use. I'll repeat that. It's lengthy. The goodness and holiness of the law and its greatest use. We're going to look at verses 7 through 13 for the next number of moments. Now remember, just brief comment here. When we read law here in Romans chapter 7, that is a reference to the moral law of God. Think the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. What God requires for righteousness, right? That's what law means. Remember how I alluded to just a moment ago before we read the text. Verses 4 through 6 of Romans 7 raise the question, is the law good? Because apparently we had to be set free from it for anything good to happen. And in our natural state, it only made things worse. So is the law good? Is there something wrong with it? Does the law lead us to sin? Paul's going to respond to that. Verse 7, you can put your eyes there. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? And you're used to this answer. The emphatic, indignant, no way, by no means. Yet, Paul says, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. So sin dwells in us, not in the law, right? And then we come to know, listen to this, this is important. We come to know sin as sin through the law. This in no way contradicts our understanding of the moral law of God. That is, that it is written on the human conscience. That's plain. Romans 2, 14 and 15 makes that plain, amongst other texts. Paul's point here in verse 7 is that without the law, we do not rightly understand our depravity. Without the law, we do not understand how bad it really is. Regarding himself, Paul says that he would not have known sin as he now knew it. That's key. Without the law. He would not have seen himself to be a sinner in the way that he now saw that without the law. Without the law, it is that much easier for us to delude ourselves into thinking that we're okay. 
we tend to flatter ourselves anyway. We don't need much help. But Paul then gives the example of coveting. Coveting is a perfect example to give. It is a heart-level sin. To desire what is forbidden is sinful. The law makes that plain, right? It's not just external things. To desire what's wrong is sin. And the law makes that obvious. Verse 8. We continue to see that sin in us is the issue. On the one hand, sin co-ops the law to produce all the more sin in us. We thought about this a couple of weeks ago. In our flesh, the righteous prohibitions of the law only serve to increase the desire of what is forbidden. There is something about us as fallen human beings. If something is forbidden, we crave it all the more. But in another sense, says Paul, the law exposes the depth of our sin. Apart from the law, we don't confront the reality of our corruption as we should. We don't see the sinfulness of sin. Without the law, there is a significant way in which our sin would go unperceived by us. This is what Paul means when he writes at the end of verse 8, apart from the law, sin lies dead. Verse 9. Paul says, I once was alive apart from the law. Now, what in the world does that mean? What Paul means is that there was a time not understanding the law rightly, not understanding the law at a spiritual level. There was a time when Paul had an inflated sense of his own righteousness. He thought he was good. thought he was fine. He trusted in his good But then, you see it. I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, he says, sin came alive and I died. When the law comes, beloved, with the power of the Holy Spirit, everything changes. The law came with the power of the Holy Spirit, so Paul had eyes to see it for what it really is, heart level, And he says, it killed me. It destroyed all of his legal hopes. He saw his sin for what it was. He saw the fact that he, in his flesh, in and of himself, was a dead man. Dead in trespasses and sins. A partaker of death. Spiritual, temporal, and eternal. You know this as well as I know this. This only occurred, this reality that we're considering, only occurred for Paul when he was converted. He never knew the law this way until he had had an encounter with the risen Christ. You know what he wrote in Philippians 3? About how he was crushing his life as a Pharisee. Knocking it out of the park. Every time he pulled that lever, it was trip sevens. He could do no wrong. 
No doubt he had studied the letter of the law his entire life. But he had not understood the law and all of its holiness at a spiritual level. He did not have true knowledge of the law in its application to the heart. He thought that he was blameless under the law. He thought that sin was effectively dead in his heart. He was doing that well. And so, as he writes of in the New Testament, he could go around seeking to establish his own righteousness. That is, until the law came this way. And cut him in half. And showed him who he was. And then all of that business of establishing his own righteousness over. Verse 10. The law does promise life to all who obey it. Do this and you will live. But it proved to be death to Paul. What he wrote. Proves to be death to all of us. This is because Paul was corrupt. This is because we are corrupt. It is because of sin in us that the law can bring us nothing but death. Verse 11, we see that sin is deceitful. Apart from the grace of God, sin even deceives us through the law. That's what Paul writes here. Sin seized an opportunity through the law to deceive Paul by deluding him into thinking he could have life by fulfilling it. Again, he studied it his whole life. But in the end, it was the reality of Paul's sin that condemned him under the law. Verse 12, Paul then draws the conclusion. He plainly states the character and the excellence of the law. The terms in verse 12, the law and the commandment, are used to give greater force, right? On the one hand, they're talking about the same reality. But on the other hand, you could rightly say, the law and everything it commands is in view here. The law and everything that it commands is holy and righteous and good. Amen. It's holy. It is from God Himself. It reflects the character of God who gave it. It is to be regarded with the highest reverence. It is righteous. It is just. There is no injustice in the law whatsoever. It is upright in every way. And it is good. It is pure. It is devoid of anything that could ever do harm. It promotes order and true happiness and blessing. Verse 13, put your eyes there. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means, he said. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin. Don't miss that. And through the commandment, what do we learn? What happens through the commandment? Sin might become sinful beyond measure. 
Paul strongly and indignantly refutes the idea that the law which is good brought death to him. He effectively says here, don't miss this, he says here that the law was the means of convincing him that he was a sinner. It was through the law that he and we come to know sin to be sin. It is through the law that Paul came to see himself to be sinful beyond measure. It is through the law that we see ourselves the same way. Through the law comes knowledge of sin, Romans 3.20. No one will ever be justified by it. We can't keep it. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. We will know through the law that sin is sin, and we will know that it is sinful beyond measure. This is the first and greatest use of the law. So all that by way of point one. The holiness and the goodness of the law and its greatest use. Point two. The corruption of the flesh and the internal war. The corruption of the flesh and the internal war. We're going to look at verses 14 to 20. Just a few comments before we dive in here. This section in no way contradicts what Paul wrote about us being dead to sin's guilt. It in no way contradicts the truth and the fact that sin will not have dominion over us. And it in no way contradicts the blessed reality that if we have now become obedient from the heart. Paul is going to write in the coming verses, we're going to get to these next week, that he delights in the law of God in his inner being and that he serves the law of God with his mind. That's not nothing. And he's going to write that he is confident and thankful that he will be finally delivered from the power of indwelling sin through Christ. So keep that in mind. Lastly, before we dive in, this section beautifully fits with what Paul had written on justification. Think about it. We are justified by faith in Christ apart from works of the law. It is impossible for a holy and just law to justify anyone who had not perfectly kept it. All of that is in view. Verse 14, let's just dive in here. He says, for we know that the law is spiritual. We know, he says. Paul had come to know this in his conversion, and he writes to saints who know this too. We know. Paul calls the law spiritual because it requires a spiritual righteousness. It requires internal obedience of the heart, and he calls the law spiritual because it is of God. Again, I'm not really arguing for a point here or for a case here, but unregenerate Human beings do not see the law that way. They don't. Unregenerate human beings do not understand the law at a spiritual level. Paul says, we know that the law is spiritual. I am of the flesh, he says, sold under sin. So on the flip side, Paul says, I'm of the flesh. I'm fallen. I'm corrupt. He brought this with him from the womb. We bring this with us from the womb, right? Every Christian is of the flesh in this sense. In ourselves, 
we are corrupt. In this sense, all Christians, even the most godly, are always of the flesh this side of the resurrection. Don't let the sold under sin phrase trip you up. All human beings have been sold under sin by the fall of Adam. That happened. Paul's going to continue to unpack this phrase in terms of what he means, that he's of the flesh, sold under sin. He's going to unpack that effectively for us in the rest of the chapter. Paul is saying effectively this. Look, the law is good and holy and just. It requires a spotless, heavenly righteousness. A righteousness that lacks nothing. But I am a fleshly man. And in my flesh, far from keeping this law, I do nothing but oppose it in my flesh. Know this. Paul is describing his present experience as a Christian. And he, as an apostle, is a man with sinful passions and sinful cravings just like you and just like me. I was moved by that thought on Friday afternoon studying this text, thinking of the apostle 2,000 years ago, pinning these words by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that he had a frame just like you have, just like I have. His hope was the same as yours and mine, Christ for him. That was it. Thank God for these words that we're about to look at. Like Paul, by God's grace through union with Christ, we are renewed in the spirit of our minds. Amen. The old man was put to death. But it has not been completely done away with yet. The body of sin is not yet completely destroyed. We still need to die. It is true that we have received a new nature. And it is true that the old nature is still with us. We carry around the corpse of our old nature with us all the time. And the old nature, beloved, own this. When we talk about sanctification, the old nature is not made holy. It's not. Sanctification is in the inner man. Thank God that Paul wrote of his own experience so that we might see ourselves here. There is an internal spiritual war that we all feel. We live it every day. At times, it's disheartening. At times, it's brutally hard. Paul knew it. He felt it. He lived it. He wrote about it by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We thank God for that reality. Verse 15. For I do not understand my own actions, he says. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. He's explaining what he'd just written in verse 14. How contrary is our fallen nature to the righteousness of the law? Consider it. Even in a regenerate person who is led to good by the Spirit of God, the corruption of the flesh rears its head. 
The flesh stubbornly resists the spirit and pulls toward what is contrary to the law. How true that is to our experience. Paul, you're reading our mail, bro. This is my life here. This verse marks the beginning of Paul's words on that internal war between the spirit and the flesh. He writes of it elsewhere. We read some of those words from Galatians 5 today. And that internal war was talking with one of you this morning before the service. And we were both acknowledging this reality. That internal war, that intense conflict between spirit and flesh is the unique experience only of the believer. While it is true that unbelievers have consciences that sometimes plague them because they're made in God's image, this is different. This is a division and a war that exists at the level of the entire person, including our will, our heart, and our mind. Listen to John Calvin's words about this war. <clears throat> the godly, in whom the regeneration of God is begun, are so divided that with the chief desire of the heart they aspire to God, they seek celestial righteousness, they hate sin, and yet they are drawn down to earth by their flesh. And thus, while pulled in two ways, they fight against their own nature, and nature fights against them. And they condemn their sins, not only as being constrained by the judgment of reason, insert what a, a non-believer might even do, but because they really in their hearts abominate them and on their account loathe themselves. This is the Christian conflict between the flesh and the spirit. Close quote. Verse 16. Paul says, Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. This is simple to understand. Paul is saying, If I, in my regenerated heart, right, if I, in my inner man, hate it, when I transgress the law, then I am agreeing with the law and God who gave it that the law is good, or else I would not lament the breaking of it, right? Verse 17, so now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Now, this is not an excuse. Far from it. It is an acknowledgement and a statement of the Christian's reality. We have a regenerate part of us. Paul's going to use the language of inner being and inner man later on in the text. We have a new nature given to us by God. And that regenerate part of us, the inner man, desires wholly and only to honor God and to live in accord with the law. And we have a corrupt flesh, that old nature that desires the exact opposite. Paul understood that when he was sinning as a Christian, it was the old man at work. Not his inner man, not his regenerate soul, not his new nature, but his old nature. It was indwelling sin at work. And in his heart, he hated it. So do you. So do I. Paul's saying, I, inner man, I see that it's evil, and I hate it. Yet there's this other thing that resides in me, 
My flesh wants the evil thing. My flesh craves the evil thing. Welcome to the experience of being a Christian, this side of the resurrection. Don't miss this, though. We talked about union with Christ quite a bit from Romans 6. We talked about identity, right? Don't miss this, that Paul clearly understands the regenerate part of him to be who he is in Christ Jesus. Because whenever he says, I, he's referring to his new nature. He's referring to that regenerate nature. Yes, the flesh remains and is a part of us, but it is no longer who we are now. It's not I, it's not us, it's not we who are sinning, but it's the flesh. It's sin that dwells in us. Verses 18 to 20. We're just going to survey these briefly. Paul says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me. Then he qualifies it. That is, in my flesh. Now, brief side note here. He has to qualify his statement that nothing good dwells in him because he's writing as a regenerate man. Right? When it comes to an unregenerate person in his natural state, there is nothing but flesh. And there would be no need for this qualification. Paul limits the assertion that nothing good dwells in me. He limits that assertion to his old sinful nature. Nothing good dwells in his flesh. He says it this way because there is good in his inner man. That good that's in his inner man is called the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. He goes on, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. You ever been there? Me too. Far too many times to count. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Paul, again, is a regenerate man, desires to do what's right. But he finds that he does not have the ability to do the right things as he wants to do them. Why? Because his flesh hinders him. We shouldn't understand that Paul is saying that he didn't do anything good, but it's that in all of it, he fell far short. So too with us, right? It's not that there's nothing good that's done. It's not that I can look at my life and say, well, there there literally is never anything good. That would be an insult to the grace of God in one sense. But it's that even in the good we aspire to do and in the good that we actually accomplish, we still fall far short. To make things worse, Paul says, he finds himself doing evil things that he does not want to do. And again in verse 20, he makes it plain that it is his flesh, it is sin that lives within him that is the cause of all of this. What he's saying effectively is that my flesh keeps me from running as I want to run. It hinders me. And it also sets obstacles in my path that I crash against and I stumble over more often than I would care to admit. At this point, I want us to reflect a little bit further on the truths here. What this means for us, what it even means for me as a preacher, that's where I'm going to begin. Reflection one. This is kind of one of those pull-the-curtain-back moments that I think is good for our congregation. 
Reflection one, what I assume as a preacher. What I assume as a preacher. What's my posture? I assume that the saints of Covenant Baptist Church love God and want to obey Him and want to honor Him and are grieved at the thought of offending Him. And I assume and know that the battle against the corruption of the flesh is intense and that you, like me, are often weak and you lament that you are. Beloved, I, I know that you love the Lord, that you want to live ever, only, and all for him. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. And your hearts cry, amen. You also love God's law. We're going to talk more about that next week. When you read the law, when you hear it expounded, when you hear it applied at the level of the heart, you think, that's good. Yes, that's good. I want to live that way. I assume for all of us and come into the pulpit week over week with the understanding that the experience of the Christian life is utterly unique. I don't mean that in some weird modern snowflake way. I just mean it's unique. We live in a kind of paradox. All of us. Our flesh loves sin. That's the problem, right? The flesh loves sin, craves things that are wrong. This is true of all human beings, but our inner man, in our souls, we hate sin. And that is only true of the saints of God. So when we do what is wrong, there is a real sense in our souls of hating what we have done, of hating the fact that we even have the capacity to do it, and of lamenting the thought that we may very well find ourselves doing it yet again. And so, what do we need? When we gather, what do we need? When we look to the book, what do we need? We need to be reminded that God's law is good and holy and just. Amen? We need to see that. We need to see the law as it is. We need to be humbled by it. We need to be reminded that we have not kept it and that we will not keep it in any way for our standing before God. We need to be encouraged in the Lord Jesus in our pursuit of conformity unto it because it no longer condemns us. It's no longer our death sentence. It is now God's good guide for our living. And we see it that way. And we pursue conformity unto it that way. When we gather, we need to have, above all things, Christ's power and mercy and love extolled to us. So that we might be encouraged, so that we might be comforted, so that we might be sustained, so that we might be propelled onward especially when we are feeling exactly the things that Paul writes about in Romans 7. When you feel that, 
when you are knowing in your heart, like when you're thinking, I don't understand myself. I'm doing what I don't want to do again. I'm not doing the good that I set out to do even today, let alone this week or this year. What will propel you and sustain you and nourish your soul in that moment? Only Jesus. Only Jesus will. Christ, as we've been saying, Christ for pardon and Christ for power unto obedience. Alongside the things I've already said, when we look to the book, we need to be shown from Scripture that God's people have always been the same. When we read Paul's words in Romans 7, it's one of those really good, you are not insane moments. You're not crazy. It's not only you who battle this. The apostle himself knew it. That is good for the soul. God's people have always been weak, sinful, unable to live the way they want to, doing the things they don't want to do, not doing the things that they want coming to the end of themselves, crying out to God alone for mercy. So, beloved, just talking as a brother in Christ to you this morning, as one of the pastors of this church, you personally, are you struggling mightily with sin? Are you grieved? by your failures and shortcomings? Do you lament your frame? I know you do. So do I. And the word to all of us is to take heart. It is not that Christianity didn't take with you. It is that you are, at the same time, justified and sinner just like all of the saints of God from all time. Take heart. Second reflection. Christian, there will be sin. That sounds terrible to say, but I'm going to unpack it. Christian, there will be sin. Galatians 5.17 For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. I trust you've been experiencing this all morning. I've alluded to it a few times. But you know how sometimes when you read something, or you hear somebody talking about something, and you're like, man, you just put words to my experience? Well, Galatians 5.17 Romans 7, 15 and 18 and 19 are just that, by the inspiration of the Spirit, putting words to our daily experience. Paul's reading our mail, as I alluded to earlier. Romans 7, 15, I don't understand my own actions. Sounds just like John Newton. I'm a riddle to myself. I'm a heap of inconsistence as it relates to not doing what we want, as it relates to doing the very things that we hate. Romans 7, 18, as it relates to wanting to do good but not being able to pull it off. Romans 7, 19, as it relates to not doing the good we want but keeping on doing the evil that we don't want. Truer words have never been written. We all know this all too painfully. 
I'm tempted right now, I'm not going to do it for the sake of time. I'm tempted to spend moments nuancing and front-loading what I'm about to say, but I'm just going to go ahead and say it, and we can have conversations at the door after if you have questions. May these truths comfort your soul this morning and sustain you in the battle against the flesh. So here's the reality, saints. You cannot always tell a Christian by his or her behavior. You cannot always tell a Christian by his or her behavior. If you're nervous, that's okay. We're going to continue on here. This matters. We are often consumed. We, the saints of God, are often consumed by our guilt. We carry around shame everywhere. It's a burden on our back. We think, I don't know if you've ever thought this. I trust you have. We think, if I believe these things, how then could I have done that? If I believe this, how could I do that? Pivotal truth. We are not Christians because of what we do. We are Christians because of what we believe. In particular, we are Christians because of what we believe about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That he is God the Son incarnate, that he kept the entire law, that he died to endure its curse, that he conquered death and Satan and hell. He is our righteousness. He is our forgiveness of sins. He is our life, period. That is what makes us believers. What makes Christianity utterly unique in the scope of world religion is not its moral code. It is its message of Christ for sinners. So hear me. And don't hear what I'm not saying. Outside of the unpardonable sin, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, outside of that, we cannot say that there is a sin that a Christian will not commit. Now, having said that, hear this. Equal weight. There is no sin that a Christian should commit. Amen? Amen. But there is no sin that it is not possible for a Christian to commit. How badly and for how long might a Christian sin? Really badly for a really long time. Our confession says so. This is never a justification for foolishness. This is not a condoning of stupidity or sinful behavior. It is an acknowledgement of living life in a fallen world and of carrying that corpse around of your old nature all the time and of being united to Christ simultaneously. We are not Christians because of what we do. We are Christians because of what we believe about Jesus. That's where we start And then from there, what we believe challenges us all day long at the level of our behavior. I'm going to repeat that because that's critical. We start by saying we're not Christians because of what we do. We're Christians because of what we believe about Christ. And then from there, what we believe about Jesus challenges me and challenges you at every turn when it comes to how we live. Because we believe, we pursue righteousness. 
Because we believe, we flee from sin. Because we believe, we fight against the corruption and the cravings of the flesh. It's that because of, not so that, reality that we've been considering. Just a few words now to conclude our time. Put your eyes back on verse 10. Paul says that the very commandment, he's referring to the law, right? The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. The law promised life. We've considered this many times. Those who do these things will live by them. If you want to enter heaven, keep the commandments, right? Do this and live. But of course, because of sin, the law was death for Paul and it's death for us. But you realize that at the end of it all, the law will have attained life for everyone in whom it's been fulfilled. You realize that. And then we come to Romans chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. We're going to have ample time to consider this in a few weeks. And we read these words. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. How is that? How is the law fulfilled in those who walk by the spirit? It's because we trust the one who is the end of the law for righteousness. For everyone who believes. The righteous life of Christ, has been, as has been said and prayed today, is counted to us as our whole and only righteousness by faith. And so, in that sense, the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us because we have been represented by Christ. We will enjoy eternal life because Jesus fulfilled the law. So, for us here and now, we are not intrinsically what we will be. We are not intrinsically what we should be. But because we are united to Christ, everything that is true of Him is true of us in the eyes of God. And our lives are hidden with Christ. That's true now. But soon and very soon, when Christ, who is our life, appears, then we also will appear with him in glory. That's our hope. Let's now go to our merciful and gracious Father in prayer and ask him to continue to be with us as we're now going to come to his table.